Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the one thing Russia and America have in common, and that is vast nuclear arsenals which could destroy the world many times over. Joining us to discuss the looming threat of the use of nuclear weapons as a war against Ukraine is poised to erupt is Joseph Serencioni, a distinguished fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and national security analyst and author with over 35 years of experience working in Washington, D.C. He's the author or editor of seven books, including Nuclear Nightmares, Securing the World Before It's Too Late, and Bomb Scare, The History and Future of Nuclear Weapons. He previously served as president of the Plowshares Fund and was director for nonproliferation at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, among other positions. He also worked for over nine years on the professional staff of the Armed Services Committee and the Government Operations Committee in the U.S. House of Representatives. We will discuss his new report at the Quincy Institute, Achieving a Safer U.S. Nuclear Posture, and calls from Russian generals demanding Putin resign and stop, quote, the criminal policy of provoking a war in which Russia would be alone against the united forces of the West, which raises the question of a breakdown in Russian command and control of nuclear weapons should war break out. Then we'll look into the National Archives' call to the Department of Justice to investigate Trump's destruction of documents and violations of the Presidential Records Act, including reports he clogged up the White House toilets with wads of documents requiring periodic visits to the White House residence by a plumber. Joining us is Julian Zelizer, a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University, whose recent books include Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of the Speaker, and The Rise of a New Republican Party, and his latest, Abraham Joshua Heschel, A Life of Radical Amazement. The co-host of the Politics and Polls podcast and a CNN political analyst will discuss his latest article at CNN, Ripping and Burning, How the Trump White House Handled Some Legally Protected Documents. Then finally, we'll look into the resignation from the Facebook board of the billionaire Trump ally Peter Thiel, who is now directing his fortune to get Trumpster candidates elected to the House and Senate, and speak with Max Shafkin, a features editor and tech reporter at Bloomberg Businessweek, whose work has appeared in Vanity Fair and the New York Times Magazine. He's the author of the new book, The Contrarian, Peter Thiel and Silicon Valley's Pursuit of Power, and we'll look into how the far-right libertarian Thiel doesn't necessarily want to destroy government, but rather aims to control it. And before we begin today's program, I'd like to thank a growing number of listeners who have become subscribers to Background Briefing, making monthly donations to our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Joseph Sorincioni, who's a distinguished fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and a national security analyst and author with over 35 years of experience working in Washington, D.C. He's the author or editor of seven books, including Nuclear Nightmares, Securing the World Before It Is Too Late, and Bomb Scare, The History and Future of Nuclear Weapons. He previously served as president of the Plowshares Fund and director for nonproliferation at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, among other positions. He also worked for over nine years on the professional staff of the Armed Services Committee and the Government Operations Committee of the U.S. House of Representatives. And he has a new report at the Quincy Institute, Achieving a Safer U.S. Nuclear Posture. Welcome to Background Briefing, Joe Serencioni. Well, thank you very much, Ian. It's always a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Joe. And the one thing that the United States and Russia have in common is they're now at loggerheads or even brinksmanship over Ukraine and the possibility of a war breaking out. Some analysts say that you know it could start you know in a week or so when the Olympics in Beijing were over on the 20th and the exercise underway, joint exercise between uh, Russia and Belarus is over also on the 20th. So the one thing that these 
two uh, adversaries have in common is they've got massive nuclear arsenals. Mm -hmm. And the last time Putin massed forces on the Ukraine border, then he mercifully backed down, he put the country on Russia on full nuclear alert. So this is a dimension of this struggle or this brinkmanship that's not really discussed very much. And I think it's at the heart of what we should be looking at, surely. Well, I think you're right, Ian, both in the Ukraine crisis and in possible conflict over, over Taiwan. I think people underappreciate how quickly such a crisis could escalate to the nuclear level. Uh, in fact, there's a new article in Newsweek just this week uh, talking about how over the last few years during the Trump administration, there was an effort, successful effort, to integrate nuclear weapons with conventional and cyber weapons to have this seamless escalatory ladder um, that that could back up um, battlefields on, on a regional level with the threat of going nuclear. Now, the, the idea, of course, you can understand is they want um, uh, the adversary to know that the U.S. is prepared to keep going all the way and, and to have greater strength in their position, kind of like hoping your big brother backs you up in a schoolyard fight. The trouble is the other side has a big brother, too. And if you escalate, you're really starting to ratchet up the, the risk that the other side will escalate as well. So I am very worried about the, the conflict in Ukraine or a future conflict over Taiwan for exactly these reasons. And is there a possibility that the chain of command in Russia, even though Putin has spent a lot of money on the military and made it much more professional, apparently, and better armed, nevertheless, there's a really alarming development uh, where the chairman of the All-Russian Officers Assembly, retired General Colonel Leonid Ivashov, he published an appeal to the citizens of the Russian Federation basically saying, well, I'll just quote from it for you. We Russian officers demand that the president of the Russian Federation reject the criminal policy of provoking a war in which Russia would be alone against the United Forces of the West. And he went on to say that Putin should retire. His organization have mm. often, they're ultra-nationalists, but they've often demanded the, the ouster of Putin as corrupt and incompetent. So you have that senior general's, thinking this whole possibility of going to war against Ukraine is crazy and it's going to turn the Ukrainians into uh, hating Russia for generations. And then you get reports that so there are some military officers that are concerned about, at the more lower level, majors and captains, etc., they're concerned about fighting against their brothers. So could you mm -hmm. have a breakdown if they do go to war? And if you have a breakdown of, of the chain of command whether it comes from the top or from the lower ranks of officers, how would that affect nuclear weapons? Mm. Well, I think in, in two ways. And, and by the way, this kind of criticism, criticism is very reminiscent of the criticism you heard from senior generals in the United States trying to warn George W. Bush about starting a war with Iraq. They, they, you, you remember senior army officials telling Bush publicly that you were going to need tens of thousands of troops to do something like this, and it could result in a quagmire. Bush didn't listen, and I'm afraid Putin won't listen uh, either. And in both cases, these are not some liberal bleeding hearts. These are hardline, you know, conservative officers, both the United States and now in, in Russia, warning against this. There's two ways that you have to worry about. One is the dispersion of, of launch authority. The, we're not exactly clear what the launch authority is in Russia, but we actually believe it's more collective than it is in the United States. In the United States, the president and the president alone can launch a nuclear weapon and no one can countermand that off that offer, that order. In in the Russia, we believe that it's more of a collective decision involving the military approving of an order by Putin to launch, for example. But in a conflict, you could start to see, and we've seen this in some Russian exercises, and we've seen it in Russian doctrine, you could see the dispersal of so-called battlefield nuclear weapons, shorter range nuclear weapons, still quite large, many times larger than the, the 
bomb we use on Hiroshima, but just shorter range, could be dispersed as a threat, as a way to back up action, to signal that Russia was serious about this and you, the United States, you, Ukraine, you, NATO, should back down. And in that situation, you really have to start giving tactical command of those weapons to the commanders in the field so they could launch them. Uh, and so you, you, you might be worried about that kind of breakdown and a lower level officer triggering a nuclear war. The second is the pressure that builds on Putin. Suppose he does do this and, and, and the, the initial invasion goes rather smoothly, like our initial invasion of Iraq did, but then he gets bogged down in a long drawn out conflict and some of his forces start to suffer heavy casualties and he seeks to have a quick end to this war and he threatens to use nuclear weapons to do that. And then he's, tr he's, he's stuck in what theorists call the commitment trap. Once you start to threaten something like this, if you don't then use it, you know, it, it undermines your position in future conflicts and you can see the pressure build for the actual use. Those are the two scenarios I think experts are most worried about in a, in a Ukraine conflict going nuclear. And again, I'm speaking with Joseph Sorenciani, who's a distinguished fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and a national security analyst and author with over 35 years of experience working in Washington, D.C. He's the author of and editor of seven books, including Nuclear Nightmares, Securing the World Before It's Too Late, and Bomb Scare, The History and Future of Nuclear Weapons, and previously served as president of the Plowshares Fund, a global security foundation, and director for nonproliferation of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and also worked for nine years on the professional staff of the Armed Services Committee and the Government Operations Committee in the United States House of Representatives. And he has a new report at the Quincy Institute, Achieving a Safer U.S. Nuclear Posture. So I want, to, I want to talk about your paper here, the Quincy Brief, Achieving a Safer U.S. Nuclear Posture. But just to finish up on the possibility of war in Ukraine and nuclear weapons being involved in that one way or the other, the U.S. Ha does it, the U.S. have nuclear weapons, short-range nuclear weapons, in Romania and Poland? No, it does not. It stores them. It has about a hundred weapons left over from the time when we used to deploy thousands in NATO Europe, but those are in five U.S. bases in in Turkey, uh, Italy, Germany, Belgium, and the Netherlands. And they've been there for decades. So yes. Putin. Putin is lying then when he says that they're right up against our door. Well, that's what he means. He means Western Europe. But no, they're not in Eastern Europe. And I think it'd be highly unlikely that Joe Biden would order the, the forward deployment of tactical nuclear weapons. That would be enormously provocative and completely unnecessary. So let's talk about your Quincy brief, Achieving a Safer U.S. Nuclear Posture. There's an expectation what it'll be out soon, right? What is it? How often do uh, presidents have to publish a new nuclear posture review? An incoming president usually does this in their first year and, uh -huh. and just their first year. They don't usually, if they have a second term, they don't usually issue a new one. So this is pretty much it for Biden. And you point out that uh, there is a history of the U.S. getting rid of nuclear weapons. We started out pointing out the enormous number of nuclear weapons that both the United States and Russia have today. The START talks began in 1991, cut the strategic nuclear arsenals in, in half, and then in the START II under President Bush Sr., they negotiated further cuts, mm -hmm. uh, eliminated 17,000 U.S. and Soviet nuclear weapons, this was done between Bush Sr. and Gorbachev. So we have a history. And of course, if you go back further, the global totals uh, of nuclear weapons are down from a high of 66,000 nuclear weapons in 1986 to slightly more than 13,000 today. And 13,000 today is pretty, <laughs> yeah, is massive overkill to begin with. Right. Both so, the United States and Russia still have about 6,000 each. We, we have about 5,500. The Russians have about 6,400. Each has enough nuclear weapons to destroy all life on this planet. So, but doesn't one U.S. Trident nuclear submarine almost have the ability to destroy not all life on this planet, but much of the planet? Uh, absolutely. We have... Um, 14 Trident subs. Each has 20 long-range intercontinental missiles. Each missile has between five and eight hydrogen bombs on it. So, you know, you do the math. Each sub is carrying over 
200 warheads. Um, so it's 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 uh, it's it's quite quite a large force and one that all by itself could end life on this planet. So do you expect Biden in the height of this kind of standoff with Russia to talk about or offer a substantial reduction? Because there is apparently a nuclear weapons lobby and it's sort of almost like zombie politics. They just get money every year uh, Mm -hmm. under the rubric of modernization. But it seems in part to be something of a boondoggle. Yeah. Well, you remember the days, Ian, when these nuclear policy debates were, 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 were epic, involving hundreds of experts and dozens of congressional hearings and often accompanied by mass protests outside or on the other side by organized conservative forces like the Committee on the Present Danger that warned in 1980 of a, a window of vulnerability where the Soviets might strike us first. These used to roll through Washington. You don't see that ideology anymore as being the prime factor in determining our nuclear posture. It's still there. And you have people like uh, Tom Cotton saying it's costly and it's ex- and, uh, and difficult, but it's better to win an arms race than lose a war. And, and who see nuclear superiority as a tool for U.S. global superiority. The more nukes we have, the better, stronger we are, uh, th- that kind of thinking. But that is relatively minor compared to two other factors that I talk about in the brief. And one is the politics of this. Uh, most of the cuts that we've seen from nuclear weapons have been done by Republican presidents, Reagan, Bush Sr., even Bush W. Bush cut the arsenal by 50 percent during his eight years. Uh, Clinton and Obama, by contrast, uh, have been very modest in, in their reductions and have been hammered for it. It's a big tough political lift for them because Republicans come at them for being weak on defense. So they tend not to put too much political chips behind this. And you have Democratic members of the Congress who continue to see um, a vote to cut the Pentagon budget or to cut a particular weapon system as a campaign liability rather than an asset. But all that is still not the dominant driver of the U.S. nuclear posture. For that, you have to look at the money behind these weapons. We still think of these things as being, you know, strategic assets for the United States. But you have to realize there's there's a, a half dozen companies who make billions of dollars making these weapons. For them, this is a product that they have to sell the way other corporations sold fossil fuels or, or tobacco or opioids, knowing that they were bad for the customer but they would make money off of them. So they promote them. And that is the dominant force you have in Washington today, a consortium of arms corporations who spend tens tens, or even hundreds of millions of dollars on lobbying each year in campaign contributions to members of Congress overseeing these programs, um, who flood think tanks in Washington with grants to mute any criticism, much less criticism in Washington these days because of those grants, who flood the publications in Washington with big ads promoting the safety and security that their weapons provide, etc. And all that has come to dominate the process. And they really run the show in the Pentagon both because there's been a revolving door for decades that's shuffled officials from top Pentagon posts to arms corporations and back, and and because they've got a hammerlock on so many congressional districts, for example, where the bases are, where senators and members of Congress are making, uh, see nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons facilities as beneficial for their district and state and allow to give them up. And so this is compounded by the fact that this nuclear posture review is written not by the White House, but by the Pentagon. The Pentagon holds the pen with token involvement of other um, agencies. So in short, you've given the people with the most incentive to keep the programs going the ability to write the policy for these programs. And unfortunately, it looks like Biden is not going to um, overrule their recommendations, which are basically to adopt a Trump light nuclear posture, to keep almost everything Trump did, make very few changes and keep the contracts flowing, keep the money for a new generation of bombers, subs, missiles and warheads flowing through the pipelines. 
that's the big disappointing thing about the Biden administration. He's not the, the president himself is not going to put down his views of nuclear weapons, which are much more progressive than the posture review he's about to uh, about to issue. So just in the last minute, then, uh, Joseph Rincioni, could you make the case that we're actually worse off now than we were at the height of the Cold War, even though there's far fewer nuclear weapons, still enormous numbers? In effect, what you have is you don't have the physical disarmament, you have the psychological disarmament, where you don't have thousands of people in the street demonstrating against nuclear weapons and nuclear war. And you still have the weapons, but there's not this sense of urgency and alarm amongst the public. One of the people I respect most in this area is former Secretary of Defense, um, William Perry. And he says often that the risks of nuclear use are higher now than there were during the Cold War for some of the factors that you just mentioned, Ian. And, and I agree with him. And we, we came face to face with this in just the last few weeks of the Trump administration when there was real fear that a deranged president would launch a nuclear weapon and nobody could stop him. Biden has the chance to change that to make sure that we're never in that situation again. And the real tragedy of this nuclear posture review is that he's not going to do it. Well, Joseph Rizzioni, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Joseph Rizzioni, who's a distinguished fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and a national security analyst and author with over 35 years of experience working in Washington, D.C. He's the author or editor of seven books, including Nuclear Nightmares, Securing the World Before It's Too Late, and Bomb Scare, The History and Future of Nuclear Weapons. He previously served as president of the Plowshares Fund, a global security foundation, and as director for nonproliferation at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, among other positions. And he also worked for over nine years on the professional staff of the Armed Services Committee and the Government Operations Committee in the U.S. House of Representatives. And he has a new report at the Quincy Institute, Achieving a Safer U.S. Nuclear Posture. We're going to take a restation break. We're back looking into the call by the National Archives to the Justice Department to investigate Trump's destruction of documents and violations of the Presidential Records Act. I've got a cupboard with cans of food, filtered water and pictures of you. And I'm not coming out until this is all over. And I'm looking through the glass where the light Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Julian Zelizer, who's a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University, whose recent books include Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of the Speaker, and The Rise of the New Republican Party, and his latest, Abraham Joshua Heschel, A Life of Radical Amazement. The co-host of the Politics and Polls podcast and a CNN political analyst, his latest article at CNN is Ripping and Burning, How the Trump White House Handled Some Legally Protected Documents. Welcome to Background Briefing, Julian Zelizer. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And the House Select Committee have received hundreds of White House records since Trump lost his legal battle at the Supreme Court. And the National Archives have called for call logs and telephone records. But apparently, there's no records of calls to and from Trump during the January the 6th riot. So is it possible that he's destroyed those records or perhaps using uh, private cell phones? What's your guess on that? I, I don't know which it is. I, I assume there are calls and communications. He was very active that day. And um, I think there's going to have to be an investigation. I don't want to speculate as to what happened, but uh, certainly it is suspicious. And those could be right at the center of any um, effort to understand how exactly January 6th connected to what the president did behind the scenes. Well, apparently in the official White House call logs, there is some information, but there's a huge gap on the actual mm -hmm. day. But at least we know from those logs that on the morning of January the 6th, Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio had a 10-minute phone conversation with President Trump just before Jordan went to the House floor to object to the certification of Joe Biden's electoral win. 
Yeah, and Jordan's a key player. He, you know, there's a, a number of Republican conservatives who were connections uh, to the Republican caucus, and so I think uh, certainly that's uh, one of the figures we need to know more about, and who had, you know. Uh, lived in a close orbit with a lot of the organizations that were involved in, in the insurrection. So one of the more extraordinary revelations is coming from a new book um, by the CNN political analyst Maggie Haberman, who's also the New York Times White House reporter. And she's uh, reporting in her new book that the White House residents would periodically have to bring in a plumber to unclog the toilets because Trump had clogged them with wads of documents and they had to sort of retrieve these wads of clumped up and wet printed paper. And that's along with other reports that apparently White House aides had to, you know, scotch tape back documents that Trump ripped up. So it sounds like a a rather difficult job that Trump has left both White House aides and the National Archives with. I think that's true from from that, uh, from other accounts we're getting from the press. It seems pretty clear this was not a president committed to keeping the records. And this is exactly why uh, we have legislation that stipulates that the records must be preserved. Uh, If a president acts this way, we lose any concrete uh, material about how things unfolded. And I think the former president, you know, saw this as he might have seen the business world, where communications can just be destroyed if if he didn't find it convenient to keep them. It's not supposed to work that way, but I think that's what Congress is facing. There's going to be a lot of empty boxes and empty spaces. So in terms of the Presidential Records Act that was signed into law in 1978 by President Jimmy Carter, are there any penalties for Trump's behavior? No, not really. Uh, This is one of the elements of the legislation that has been criticized uh, over time. The enforcement is very weak. It really lays out what you're supposed to do, um, but then doesn't have any way to make sure you're doing it. We have depended on the good graces of presidents to follow it. The only question is with national security documents. And uh, I know the Justice Department, um, there was at least a story is, is looking into this. And I don't know if there there's an area where some kind of action could be taken. But presidents, as we see over and over with presidential power, have a lot of leeway to make these decisions and not have any punitive action against them. Well, apparently you mentioned classified documents, Julian Zelazar. There was a discovery in the 15 boxes of documents that were returned to the government last month from Mar-a-Lago that some of those uh, documents appear to have classified information in them. So who's actually doing the detective work here? Well, I'm sure the National Archives is is looking into this. I'm sure the Department of Justice, from what we hear, is at least setting into place potential investigations. And and I don't know what Congress will do. I mean, this is an oversight question where Congress, uh, the House, uh, should have the ability and willingness, more importantly, to continue pursuing where this all went. It might be there, it's gone. It might be it's literally down the toilet. Um, but I think all three different uh, elements of this, National Archives, Congress, and Justice, need to understand this more, especially since these are not documents that we're talking about that might have been accidentally removed um, or that don't really deal with a central issue. We're talking about documents in part that might tell us more about January 6th and documents that might be very relevant and important for other national security questions. And again, I'm speaking with Julian Zelizer, who's a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University, whose recent books include Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of the Speaker, and The Rise of the New Republican Party, and his latest book, Abraham Joshua Heschel, A Life of Radical Amazement. The co-host of the Politics and Polls podcast and a CNN political analyst, his latest article at CNN is Ripping and Burning, how the Trump White House handled some legally protected documents. So apparently, after a lengthy back and forth between lawyers, Trump's lawyers and the National Archives, the archives, National Archives did get a dozen boxes of these materials that I mentioned. Among them were the original version of the letter that former President Barack Obama had left 
for Mr. Trump when he was sworn in. And then, of course, there were the love letters between Trump and the North Korean Kim Jong-un, and, inclu- and also the the map of Hurricane Dorian heading towards Alabama with Trump's black Sharpie additions to the map. So how would you rate that kind of material in terms of getting a full presidential record uh, for historians? And you're a presidential historian. Well, my my starting point always is all material can be relevant. We don't know at the time what becomes significant. It's impossible to gauge what different kinds of historians are going to want to look at. So that's why the default should be keep everything. And obviously things could be classified. They're already preserved for 12 years before we get to look at them. Um, But you can't selectively figure out what will be important in the future. But certainly we don't need to even wait to understand the communication of one president to the other is not something um, that we should lose or the communication between a president and another foreign leader uh, with regard to North Korea. These can be incredibly valuable. Even that map was a part of his presidency. It can get us into understanding how he handled the media and uh, issues involving national uh, uh, crises and, uh, and environmental crises. So we just have to assume all of that will be important at some point. And that's why it's so dangerous to uh, see a president uh, try to take some of this or get rid of it altogether. Well, this is yet another norm, is it not, that uh, Trump has violated? It's exactly right. I mean, it's it's connected to other stories we followed during the Trump presidency, where we learn that law uh, doesn't always constrain a president, uh, nor does oversight. And sometimes what we depend on are norms, norms that presidents follow. Even the most partisan of presidents have to have some kind of limitations. And this story about uh, what he appears to be willing to do with his documents, both while he was in the White House and now, is another norm he just doesn't follow. And I think his assumption, which might be right, is there's not a lot of uh, political fallout um, or any kind of penalty for doing this. And so it's very dangerous. The more this becomes a precedent, the more other presidents are going to say, you know, we don't have to keep this record. Uh, let's find a way to get rid of it. And this all, stems, of course, this all stems, of course, if we remember from Richard Nixon and the erasure um, of a key tape during the Watergate hearings, uh, which ultimately was a big reason why we have this law to start. And Nixon tried to protect his papers after leaving the presidency. So this is going back to Nixon and, and seeing the former President Trump learn the wrong lessons from that period. But so far, Trump seems to have been incredibly successful in breaking the norms of when a president is defeated, he goes off into retirement and writes his memoirs. President Trump is making, former President Trump hasn't gone away. His stop the steal lie has metastasized into the Republican Party's almost platform for 2022 and 2024. The RNC recently described the January the 6th insurrection as legitimate political discourse. So they're almost, the GOP is almost endorsing political violence and the massive amount of voter suppression that's going on would indicate that it's a very good chance that Trump could get re-elected, not by fair means, but by foul means, in 2024. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and I'm in agreement with everything you said. Uh, he remains uh, in strong standing. Uh, it doesn't seem to me that he's feeling or facing any kind of serious threat at this point, uh, meaning as a result of what he's done and the norms he's broken. And it's very clear that he and the Republican Party are generally on the same page. And even Senator McConnell's recent comments that were stronger, of course, on January 6th, don't really persuade me that the party is anywhere close to wanting to do something about it. And as McConnell has said himself, that he will support Trump if he's the nominee. So uh, there's a lot of reason why Trump feels freedom to uh, flout norms, uh, because there's no penalty for doing so, and his own party stands 95% behind him. 
Well, it's having an effect as we speak, though. The German, new German chancellor was at the White House a few days ago, and President Biden kept emphasizing that if the Russians invade, if the tanks cross the border into Ukraine, he will kill the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Uh, and Scholz was asked the same thing, and he, he didn't entirely agree or endorse exactly what the president was saying because he's in a difficult spot because of German domestic politics. And apparently, one of the reasons why Scholz, who's in the coalition government, is in a, in a bit of a spot in terms of German domestic politics is that the Germans and the French and others in Europe are sort of not so much hedging their bets, but they're, they're thinking, you know, Trump can come back. It's already having an effect on, on foreign policy, apparently. Right. Uh, even in this post-presidential period, my guess is after watching um, Trump hold office and seeing the outcome of 2020, um, where Biden won, uh, but it was not the kind of margins some expected. I'm sure many European leaders are assuming, like many political observers here in the U.S., that there is a viable path for a second Trump term. Uh, and they might be basing some of their decisions on foreign policy accordingly. I think that's a great uh, way to gauge overseas how people are thinking about this. And, and the leaders are not assuming this is just uh, inevitably a one-term presidency. So Joe Biden's proclamation when he first took over, America is back, that's even been undermined. Correct. Uh, and some of it is obviously uh, mistakes, many would argue, that Biden has made. But a big part of it is the continued shadow of Donald Trump, which I think looms large uh, over the United States, over its political system and over the way leaders overseas are trying to make calculations about what to do and thinking who will be president uh, in January 2025. And, and many are not saying with certainty that it won't be President Trump, which means from their perspective, um, a lot of the key alliances could still be threatened uh, and and as weak as they had been in the last four years. So just in the last couple of minutes, Angelina Zelazo, back to the National Archives. There's another issue involving the National Archives, and that is the certification of the Equal Rights Amendment. And a number of Democratic senators and Two Republican senators, Murkowski and Collins, the two women, are urging, along with the Democrats, the National Archives, to publish the ERA as the latest amendment to the United States Congress. Hmm. But they're being opposed, uh, in particular, by three Republican senators, Rob Portman, Ron Johnson, and Mitt Romney. So where does that stand? And who's got a case here? I actually haven't even heard about this story, so uh, it's breaking news as we speak, and, and I have to look a little bit more at what happened before I'd have a comment. Right. Well, it is extraordinary that how yeah. long it's taken to get the ERA. Right I, I, just taught, I, just, I just taught a class about the 1970s where we're talking about this huge push where um, you know, 35 states moved pretty quickly to ratify it, but then a conservative mobilization by Phyllis Schlafly and, and some others on the right stopped it uh, before it was ratified. And, and it's been in limbo ever since. And in some ways, it's interesting because it was one of the first major successes of this new conservative movement that set the foundation ultimately for the Trump presidency. And that's the movement that you wrote about in your book, Burning Down the House. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. So just in the last minute, then, an overview from you about whether or not the Democrats can make some kind of, not so much a comeback, but at least hold a line in 2022. It feels to me, with the massive voter suppression going on, and the gerrymandering and the ability the Republican legislatures have to, if they don't like the results, they can overturn them. At the very least, they'll be mired in court battles and possibly even street violence, given the kind of incendiary rhetoric coming from Trump and others and the kind of people that stormed the Capitol on January the 6th. Is it possible that the Democrats can start a popular movement to save American democracy, to get the vote out from a lot of people that don't normally vote? The Democrats have to have 8% more votes now 
just to break even with the Republicans. But now, if you add in the voter suppression, they've got to really mobilize. And can they do it? It's certainly going to be hard by the midterms. I I do think it's possible for voting rights groups to mobilize and and to have effect. That was the story of the early 1960s. Voting rights, uh, the legislation of 65, didn't come out of Congress automatically. It came out of a Congress um, where there was pressure coming from below. But but this is a, a big push. The conservatives are just as mobilized at this point, if not more mobilized behind the voter restrictions. So that's one of the big challenges. I think realistically, Democrats would hope that by 2024, they could get a a big get out the vote mobilization. I'm not sure it's possible by November 2022. The the midterms um, look very difficult. I think that the biggest thing would not be voter mobilization. It would be somehow uh, such an easing of the pandemic and, and strong economic conditions combined with that, that that fewer voters want to change um, status of Congress. But but I think Democrats are probably going to be looking at losses. And the question is, how bad are the losses? Well, Jillian Zelzer, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Julian Zelizer, who's a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University, whose recent books include Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of the Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party, and his latest, Abraham Joshua Heschel, A Life of Radical Amazement. And he's the co-host of the Politics and Polls podcast and a CNN political analyst, where his latest article is Ripping and Burning, How the Trump White House Handled Some Legally Protected Documents. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the resignation from the Facebook board of the billionaire Trump ally, Peter Thiel, who is now directing his fortune to get Trumpster candidates elected to the House and Senate. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Max Chafkin, who is a features editor and tech reporter at Bloomberg Businessweek, whose work has appeared in Fast Company, Vanity Fair, and the New York Times Magazine. And he's the author of the new book, The Contrarian, Peter Thiel and Silicon Valley's Pursuit of Power. Welcome to Background Briefing, Max Chafkin. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And on Monday, the CEO of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, issued a statement about the resignation from the board of Peter Thiel. He said, Peter has been a valuable member of our board, and I'm deeply grateful for everything he's done for our company, from believing in us when few others would, to teaching me so many lessons about business economics and the world. So Facebook's now looking at, I don't know, its stock's gone down, but it's also apparently not growing anymore, or at least it's leveling off. So is there any connection between Facebook's apparent at least loss of momentum since it's been growing at such a meteoric pace? Is there a connection there, do you think, Max, between yeah. Facebook's fortunes and uh, Peter Thiel's resignation of the board, or is it simply as Peter Thiel's saying, um, he's going to devote his energies and money to electing some members of the Senate and the House. I think they're absolutely related. And it it does feel in a lot of ways, as you suggest, that, you know, Facebook, um, maybe with some help from Peter Thiel and his resignation, is is, is sort of trying to turn a page, right? Is trying to go from from one business to another, trying to go from uh, social media, which is not not doing super well, to this plan to, you know, dominate the metaverse, in other words, virtual reality. Um, uh, as, as you said, Wall Street doesn't love that. I mean, the other thing that is going on is that, you know, for a long time, Mark Zuckerberg and Peter Thiel, despite this very close relationship, there's been a lot of tension, um, you know, uh, Teal, of course, is is a uh, you know, pretty right wing. Uh, Zuckerberg uh, is maybe more of a libertarian cent- centrist. I don't think they they're totally aligned um, politically. And Teal has also been pretty critical of of social media and has been at times backing candidates uh, uh, for office who are critical of of Facebook specifically. Um, the thing is, though, they ha- there's been this kind of mutually beneficial relationship where. 
Teal provides, you know, an in to the to the right wing during Trump's, um, you know, presidency. It was an in to the Trump administration where where Teal was a prominent, you know, supporter and it served on the transition. And Facebook to Teal, of course, was, you know, one of is a real position of power being on the board of, of a company that, you know, at times has been worth more than a trillion dollars and having this long relationship with Zuckerberg. Um, had been a major source of of his power. So so what changed? One is uh, that source of power doesn't seem as significant anymore because Facebook is suddenly on the outs, at least with with Wall Street, and is is struggling with growth. And of course, you know Donald Trump isn't president anymore. So so those political connections are no longer. Uh, as valuable as they were, you know, during the Trump presidency. And and so you have Teal, you know, pivoting and, and the pivot is from, you know, being an advisor uh, to, you know, one of the most powerful people in business to uh, this political project, which is uh, uh, promoting candidates and, and and funding candidates who kind of represent the, uh, you know, I, I think as they see themselves kind of the Trump movement of the Republican Party, uh, where, you know, it's 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 they're running on, you know, hardcore immigration uh, restrictions, you know, nationalism, populism, and of course also uh, the, the kind of uh, stop the steal stuff, uh, sort of winking at voters in various ways and implying that the, the uh, 2020 election was stolen. And in 2019, Zuckerberg and Thiel had a private dinner with uh, President Trump. And Thiel is worth, what, between $2.53 billion. He has 10%, I think, of Facebook's uh, stock. So, so that's a good chunk, isn't it? Well, yeah. So so Teal's net worth actually probably quite a bit higher than that, uh, mostly because the market has gone up a lot uh, since uh, you're citing, I think, a Forbes estimate, and um, and and the market is um, you know has 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 gone up a lot. I'd say it's um, you know above five billion, maybe even uh, getting close to ten billion. Um, and and he actually this is kind of interesting. You know, for a time Teal had had ten percent of Facebook, but he actually sold that stock. You know, a really long time ago, and 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 for for many years, actually, his 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 holdings in the company, his stock holdings, were not that significant. Most of his wealth is coming, you know, from his other investments, uh, uh, particularly Palantir, which is a a kind of t tech defense contractor that he founded at the same time that that he you know basically was getting involved with with Mark Zuckerberg and helping to get Facebook started. Um, so so he hasn't been that invested in this company, but but it's been this kind of close personal relationship and. A political alliance, which which that the story that you just mentioned, the the Trump this this the situation where Zuckerberg is meeting with Trump and Teal is serving as kind of a power broker between them, um, had been a, a bit both a critical thing for Facebook and a way for Facebook to avoid, you know, my opinion and based on my reporting, you know, the the ire of of, of the Trump administration, um, and uh, and of course, uh, you know, a way for for Teal to position himself politically as this. Um, person who's on the right, but who kind of has credibility with Silicon Valley. And again, I'm speaking with Max Chafkin, who is a features editor and tech reporter at Bloomberg Businessweek, whose work has also appeared in Fast Company, Vanity Fair, and the New York Times Magazine. And he's the author of the new book, The Contrarian, Peter Thiel, and Silicon Valley's Pursuit of Power. And Thiel's, since he's now going to devote his energies in leaving the Facebook board to electing some of his candidates, Blake Masters in Arizona running for the Senate, who is the chief operating officer of Peter Thiel's family office, and also J.D. Vance in Ohio, who worked for one of Thiel's venture funds. He's also working on backing four Senate candidates and 12 House candidates. He's also going to be appearing with Donald Trump Jr. soon, I think, in Wyoming at a big fundraiser He's co-hosting uh, an event called Wyoming Values Pack, a super PAC supporting Wyoming Republican Harriet Hagman, uh, who's waging a primary challenge against Representative Liz Cheney. So he's out there on the, the Trumpster right of the Republican Party backing these very Trumpian candidates. So could Peter Thiel become, since he's now worth $5 billion, as opposed to 26 could he become the biggest donor in terms of trying to finance a comeback of Donald Trump? So, you know, he hasn't been, until this cycle, 
that he's been a very prominent donor. He's somebody who gets a lot of attention and who's written a handful of big checks. But he, but he wasn't really in the kind of upper echelon with, you know, Sheldon Adelson and George Soros and, you know, kind of kind of these these billionaires who who are really politically active um, until this this cycle, until until the um, until this decision to put, you know, 10 million bucks um, behind J.D. Vance's uh, candidacy, 10 million uh, uh, behind Masters. And, and it appears there's more. You know, he's raised uh, a good deal of money for um, Hageman, who's, you know, running against Liz, Liz Cheney. And and what you're seeing is him is 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 efforts, I think, for him to establish himself as a as a, to, to play kind of a, a Koch brothers type role. Um, but to this, but to this kind of uh, ascendant wing uh, of the Republican Party, which is, which is of course, um, the Trump wing, and and they're going to be other contenders and, and and other people who who are interested in 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 financing that. But but Teal definitely seems like, um, the, you know, the one who's out there in the biggest way right now. And the, him and Blake Masters uh, referred to as the crypto bros because hmm. uh, they came up with a scheme. I think uh, Blake Masters co-authored Zero to One, Teal's book, didn't he? Yeah, Masters is a really interesting candidate. It kind of gets to Teal's kind of what Teal is sort of likes in, in politicians. I mean, he has no conventional experience. Um, he's basically been, you know, an aide to Peter Teal for his entire career um, and is the co-author of this book. But what Masters brings is ideological credibility and a, and a lot of discipline. I mean, and he's also quite good at, at social media. Uh, one of one of the things that Masters did that's that's been very successful is he sold you know 99 NFTs. These are non fungible uh, tokens. It's it's basically a crypto thing. And in exchange for uh, $5,800, which is the you know the maximum you can donate to a, a Senate candidate for the primary and general election. Um, the, the donors would get uh, a dinner with, uh, you know, Blake Masters and Peter Thiel and, uh, a, you know, some unspecified, you know, benefits, exclusive access to continued, you know, uh, conversations with with Thiel and, and, and Masters. And that just shows Thiel's willingness, um, you know, first of all, to be innovative and to be associated with innovative people. I think the idea you can kind of scoff at it, but it, it, it raised, uh, you know, it sold out. They, they, they managed to sell all these um, NFTs. And um, and it also just shows his willingness to sort of um, make himself available to 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 allow himself to be used for for these fundraising purposes. Sure. They, they raised over half a million. Yeah, exactly. And and of course, you imagine they might be able to to kind of continue to do that, that sort of thing um, as the race, um, you know, get, gets tighter. And as as more people get interested in in the 2022 elections. So how is J.D. Vance and Blake Masters doing? I didn't think they were doing that well, but it sounds like with Teal's backing, he, he could probably outspend the opponents, couldn't he? Well, so it Teal's backing kind of instantly makes them both credible. I don't think it instantly puts them to, you know, on top and, and certainly doesn't guarantee them a win. Uh, I think Arizona seems a little bit just as then. Now, this is just my read. Seems like Masters is in, in a slightly better position than um, than Vance is in Ohio. Ohio is very competitive, and and crucially, there is another kind of Trumpist candidate, um, Josh Mandel, who is who is actually doing a little bit better than Vance uh, thus far. Of course, the Vance campaign would you know dispute that, um, but who but who's basically competing with Vance for that Trump uh, that coveted Trump endorsement. And I think ultimately with both these races, you know, where uh, the former president lands is going to is going to say a lot about what happens in the primaries. And then it and even that doesn't guarantee a win. Um, Arizona is kind of interesting because Masters opponent is the current um, attorney general of the state. And and who, of course, uh, certified, you know, Biden's election in 2020. And Masters has has turned that into a into a political issue. But of course, Brnovich, who's the 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 AG from Arizona, the state AG, um, is in his own right. You know, he's he's won elected office. He has a political base. He's he's raised a lot of money. So so we may in Arizona see a kind of uh, Trump Trumpist versus the you know versus the kind of mainstream Republicans, and and the Masters race could be kind of a proxy of that of that argument that's going on right now. But. Since you've you've written this book about Peter Thiel, the contrarian Peter Thiel and Silicon Valley's pursuit of power, what explains, I mean, he was close to Trump, obviously, and he spoke at the Republican convention when Trump was nominated. And as I mentioned, he had that dinner in 2019 at the, you know, private dinner at the White House with Mark Zuckerberg and Trump. 
What does he see in Trump? I mean, I know he's a libertarian, but Trump has no ideology. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all about him. His, uh, <laughs> Trump's ideology is Donald Trump. Um, so I think it's two things. I mean, one, one is, uh, you know, this decision to leave the Facebook board um, is in some ways Teal, you know, leaving Silicon Valley in favor of politics. But he is, you know, at his heart, an investor and somebody who, you know, looks for these, you know, you know, weird opportunities, unconventional opportunities where there's, you know, maybe a lot of risk, but also a lot of upside. And I think right now um, and over the last, you know, uh, five years or so, there's just been, uh, you know, there's been kind of a scramble in the Republican Party, right, to see who is who, who's going to be in charge. And I think Teal is very good at, at sniffing out those opportunities. I think part of it is is a calculation. And the other part of it is that I think there are parts of Trumpism that 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 really appeal to Peter Teal. Peter Teal, his much of his career, people don't know this, but you know, was in kind of um, right wing activism. And and one of his big issues, um, maybe his most important issue, has been this 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 concern about political correctness, this this fear that, you know, the the left the left controls all these cultural institutions and is suppressing uh, you know, conservative thought and conservative voices. And that, of course, was very much at the core of of, of Trump's candidacy you know, and, and, and Trump's appeal, I think, to to the average voter. And I also think, you know, Trump is just and this gets back to what I was saying at the beginning. I, you know, Trump, it was kind of a, a you know, a, a high risk, high reward bet or, you know, it, Trump was sort of an undervalued asset and, and Teal got behind him and 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 has now, you know, vaulted to a, a position of prominence. So so I think some of it is is calculation and some of it is ideology. And just to illustrate your point, when Teal publicly criticized Facebook's content moderation decisions, he said, I'll take QAnon and Pizzagate conspiracy theories any day over a ministry of truth. So where does he get this idea? I know the Club for Growth, its head has often said that his objective is to shrink the government down to a size where he can drown it in a bathtub. So he's got a huge government contract with Palantir, which does a lot of stuff for the CIA. So he's sort of getting it both ways, isn't he? I mean, does he really think that the United States government is a kind of Orwellian institution? I mean, the whole joke about the deep state theories, which I, I imagine Peter Thiel believes in, if there was a deep state, we wouldn't have had January the 6th. I mean, come on. Where's well, the deep state? Well, I mean, I think a couple of things. Uh, you know, I think that Thiel is and, and sees himself as a very different Republican um, from a club for growth type Republican, right? He is not somebody who wants to um, who wants to you know drown the state in a bathtub. But what he wants is to control the state. And and I think um, you know uh, uh, you'll see a, a couple of things in his kind of political sort of thought. And when you you know sort of pay close attention to his candidates, you know one is that they're not they're not for necessarily like small government. They're they're for um, th- in fact a lot of places that they, they praise you know these kind of big government government policies. Um, but they're very skeptical, and I think this is where um, the ideology get, goes off into you know some extreme territory. They're they're skeptical of democracy. So it's not that they're skeptical of government; it's they're skeptical of 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 uh, of, of public control of, of of government. And 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 so so that and I think that's the that's the big difference. And and they definitely are in favor of you know robust uh, military spending and 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 an industrial policy um, that would be much more you know sort of uh, that that would be sort of a throwback, you know. They they want to build up, you know, basically state capacity uh, for for American industry, um, which they see, you know, that has, you know, there's a, there's a strategic reason to do that, but of course it could also help, you know, many of Peter Thiel's businesses. He's, you know, invested in, as you said, a major defense contractor. Um, he's a he's one of the big investors in Elon Musk's rocket company, another major defense contractor. So so it has a potential to 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 enrich him further as well. Well, you've left me thinking about your statement that Peter Thiel wants to control the government, not drown it in a bathtub, and I find that quite frightening. But I thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Max Chapkin, who is a features editor and tech reporter at Bloomberg Businessweek, whose work has also appeared in Fast Company, Vanity Fair, and the New York Times Magazine, and he's the author of the new book, The Contrarian, Peter Thiel and Silicon Valley's pursuit of power. 
This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America One more light goes on